Guys, I just want to thank you for, uh, for letting me be a part of your worship service tonight. Uh, thank you for the coffee. I'm excited about a few things. Um, I'm excited about coffee. I'm excited about Jesus, and I'm excited about uh, being here with you guys tonight. Not in that particular order, but the coffee is clutch. Um, as Drew said, my name is Garen Tate. Uh, I'm the student minister here at Morrison Heights. So it's, it's kind of refreshing to, uh, to, to get to speak to, uh, to an older crowd. Um, I'm assuming that fewer of you guys will be picking your nose during the sermon. Um, no, no joke. Like you, you never know what you're going to experience working in student ministry. And there's some things that you're like, okay, this kid just said this, but I really don't know how to feel about it. Uh, yesterday, I, I was at coffee with, with a, a kid. He's like in maybe eighth or ninth grade. And I said, uh, hey, man, how's, how's life going? Tell, tell me what you're excited about. And he said, well, man, I, I, made, this, I made this killer quiche the other day. I was like, first of all, what is quiche and why are you making it? And is it legal? And then he explained, he explained to me what quiche was, and I was like, okay, we, we don't need to pray for you, other than the fact that you, maybe you need to find a new hobby. Um, but uh, I, mean, no, I, I love my students, um, but I'm, I'm also thankful of any opportunity that Drew gives me to, uh, to speak to you guys as well. Um, I, I want to think with you guys just for a little bit tonight uh, about uh, something that's kind of a follow-up uh, from Easter. Um, there are a number of, of statements that Jesus made from the cross, and I want to focus on one in particular tonight. Um, and if, if you want to turn in your Bibles and, uh, and follow along, um, it's uh, John chapter 19, <clears throat> verse 30. The scripture says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said to Telestai, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, this, this statement is, this word is, in and of itself is not really, it's, it's not magical, it's not, there's nothing that's like, oh, well, he used this term, so it must mean something completely different than what people would normally say. Uh, the, the word to telestai was a pretty common word. If there was a transaction that was going on in the market, a, 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 a vendor might say, you know what, to, to telestai, this, this transaction is finished. If it was uh, a military campaign, the general at the end of the war might say, Tetelestai, this, this enemy army is finished. Um, you guys might be getting ready to say here in a couple of weeks, thank God, Tetelestai, this semester is over. And for those of you taking, if you're taking summer semester, I'm sorry, it's not Tetelestai. You keep going. I don't know what the Greek word for keeping on going is. But, but this word is, is important, but the context of this word and, and trying to unpack and figure out what is it that, that Jesus was saying, he was referring to whenever he said to Telestai, I think that's important. As we talk about faith, I think this is one of the most important questions that we can ask whenever we consider what Jesus did on the cross, what that means to us, and more importantly, that we can have faith that God is who he said he is and that he's going to do everything that he said he's going to do. And scripture beautifully weaves this, uh, this message from Genesis to Revelations. Um, so I, I'm going I'm to warn you guys tonight, uh, we'll be looking at Leviticus a little bit. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, uh, Genesis a little bit. Uh, usually, you know, I, I have every good intention of doing like a, one of those read the Bible through in a year deals. 
And you know, Genesis, I'm good, man. The story of Abraham, the story of Joseph, I'm feeling it. Exodus, you know, Moses, part in the Red Sea, doing his thing. And then I get to Leviticus. And I'm like, you know, why do I need to know that it's, it's not good to, to boil a goat in his mother's milk? I mean, what is the purpose of that? Why do I need to know that it is a sin not to trim your beard cleanly? Which I think tonight I'm, I'm sinning. But I get to Leviticus and I'm like, man, I, let's, let, me, let me read a Pauline epistle. But if we consider what Jesus is saying here and what the commentary of Scripture is, that makes this one statement so important because of what he's saying is finished. And then looking back at the history of what God communicated to Abraham, what he communicated to Moses through the law, that makes this statement so important, and that makes those books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that much more important. So the next time that you're, uh, you're, you're doing a, a read the Bible through in a year plan, and you're like, man, Leviticus, I just can't handle it, remember, Garen said this is important and this is for a reason, and it probably won't make it any easier, but maybe if you tell yourself that enough, you can, uh, you can power through it. Um, so it is finished to tell us that. I think... I think we can break this down into two, into two different categories. One, he's saying, in a sense, the law is finished. Because ultimately, uh, an argument could be made that, that Jesus was put to death because he was completely different from what the, the law would kind of dictate, or at least the interpretation of the law, the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, what that would dictate. He was completely different. This guy was, he, he did work on the Sabbath day. He touched the unclean. He touched the dead. He did, he, he seemingly broke the rules that the Pharisees and the religious leaders held so important. And the law was important. It served many different purposes. Uh, a couple of purposes is one, the law was used to distinguish Leviticus 20, 26. Uh, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. See, God's intention was that the children of Israel, they didn't look like the other nations around them. That's the whole reason why the, it, it, was, it was a fight for Israel to get their first king. That was not God's intention. But if you, if you read that story, if you read what the, the perception of Israel was, they wanted to have a king so that they could look like other nations. God's intention was for them to not look like other nations. So hence we have all the laws, all the Levitical laws. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the, what God communicated to Moses. So the law was, uh, was, was meaningful in order to distinguish. The law was meaningful in order to restrain. Practical application here. What happens whenever you're driving down the parkway and you see the speed limit sign? See, y'all are much more reserved than my students because I, I asked them that the other day and they're like, oh, we speed up. And I was like, yeah, you idiots, you do. <laughs> it, do. Do you have people that do donuts out here on the parking lot? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm working on some of my guys. So the law was, was meant to restrain. It, it set clear boundaries. And there, there are many applications that we can use for why those boundaries are, are beneficial. Uh, if, if we have any football players, if, if you tried to play football with no restraint, no boundaries, no rules, could you play football? No. You couldn't. 
Because what would a touchdown be if, if you didn't have the rule? What, what's out of bounds if you didn't have the rule? So in a sense, the, the purpose of the law was to restrain and to, and to help the children of Israel understand what it was that God expected from their life. Thirdly, the law was used to diagnose. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, um, Paul says, for by, works, uh, for by works of the law, no human being while being, uh, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 7, 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would have not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So I, I think it's safe to assume that, that if we are a follower of, of the Lord, we, we want to know what the, what the expectations are, right? I mean, th- that could be applied to, that thought could be applied to your friendships, you want to know what the expectations of your friends are. You know, do you have people that they expect you to be available only when they need you to help move something heavy? We all have those friends. They're the ones that maybe we don't answer the phone because we know that, okay, dude, I don't want to move your refrigerator again. <laughs> I don't want to move. Uh, you, you need help moving from your house? Uh, sorry, I, I broke my leg. But, but, but the law helps us diagnose, and by diagnosing, we can, we can understand the expectations that God has for his children. And then, additionally, the law existed to give life. The good news, Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's the good news. And here's the bad news. It's impossible to keep all the rules. Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now, in, particularly in college and high school, um, in, in a lot of aspects of life, we would, we would assume that if you had 100 questions on a test and you got 99 of them right, that's a good thing, right? I mean, I, I would take that. I, I live by the motto, Caesar and degrees. And I'm trying to break that bad habit. Uh, for, for rhyming purposes, I guess so do D's, earn degrees. F's, not so much. But if, if we got 99 out of 100 right, we would think that was a success. However, with the law, James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. So if we have broken one law, it's as if we've broken them all. If we've coveted, it is just as bad just to covet as it is to covet and boil a goat in his mother's milk. Which I don't know if that's a thing or not with you guys, but if it is, I don't want to know. So, so the expectation here that the law provides is that we must be perfect. And, and we see the, the history of Israel, how God expected perfection. And because they weren't perfect, yearly they had a really just odd part of Scripture where it talks about the, the animal sacrifices. We have those, those scenarios where the high priest, he slays an animal and he sprinkles the blood on the people. And the reason that 
He did that was to roll back the imperfections for one more year until a suitable, until a suitable sacrifice can be made. And so we come back to John chapter 19. And Jesus says, it is finished. Well, to fully understand this, I think we have to, to understand the reason that Jesus was here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he's, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. It's important because, you see, the expectation of the law is still that you are perfect. And I don't know, I, I don't know you guys, but I'm willing to bet that there aren't too many perfect people here tonight. We struggle at something in something at some point. So the expectation is still perfection. But what Jesus is saying is that I've come not to destroy the law, but the expectation of the law, I'm going to meet that and I'm going to become your righteousness. I'm going to become perfect for you so that you don't have to be because you can't be. But in me, you are perfect. You can be perfect. And so I think what he's saying is whenever he says it is finished, is he's saying that the, the expectation of the Levitical law of, of the, the children of Israel, of the covenant children being perfect is fulfilled because he paid the price. And if we're talking about who we're putting our faith in, and if we're asking the question, can I believe that God is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do? <clears throat> well, the whole Old Testament points to the fact that there is a better sacrifice to come. So we have the law. I think, I think one of probably the many things that he's saying is finished is that the fulfillment of the law is finished. Second is redemption's plan, the work of redemption. And uh, I invite you to turn back to Genesis chapter 12. <clears throat> I think to really, to really get this, we have to understand where a lot of this really got started. The Abrahamic covenant is, is so important. We have this, uh, this, this business transaction uh, of sorts in, uh, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. Notice, notice the pronouns here. <clears throat> that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have a pretty important covenant that God makes with Abraham. Looking at the terms, what God promises to Abraham is land. He promises descendants to a dude that was pretty old. It's been, a, it's been a while since I've taken anatomy and physiology, but I think as old as Abram was, probably shouldn't have had kids. But God was willing to work in ways that only God can work, and he does this so many times because he is jealous to get the glory. And look, look throughout all Scripture. Why does he use a 12-year-old kid to slay a giant? Why does he use an army of 350 to destroy an army of hundreds of thousands? Is it because he's just like, you know what, this is going to make for a good book one of these days. No, that's, that's not it. God is constantly saying, there is nobody else that deserves glory other than me. And I will work to do whatever I have to do to make sure that I get the glory. So we have old Abraham and old Sarah having a baby because God promised it. 
Notice the conditions of this covenant. God's role. God will lead. God will make a nation. God will bless Abraham, and God will protect Abraham. What is Abraham's role in this? I, I think this is awesome. Basically, Abraham has to be willing to do what? To, to just follow. It's not because Abraham is that good of a businessman that he's going to make a great nation. It's not because he is that good looking that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But it's because he simply had faith that God was going to be true to his promise. And if you read the story of Abraham, and if you read the story of Isaac, you see that God reaffirms that covenant time and time again. Even when um, Abraham is unfaithful, even when Isaac is unfaithful, God is still faithful to his covenant that he made to Abraham. This consistency in Scripture. So basically, God is carrying the load here. Now skip to Genesis chapter 15, and this is... I mean, honestly, this is kind of where it gets weird for me. <clears throat> um, let's start in, uh, in verse 8. But he said, O Lord, um, how am I to know that I shall possess it, meaning the promised land? The Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back um, here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, let me pause right here. God was, God was calling the shot here. God was saying, hey, Abram, you need to know that this is about to happen, and it's bad. It's not going to be good for you or your people. But the reason I'm telling you this is to let you know that I know. I know exactly what's going to happen. And so I, I don't have a lot of good answers for why bad things happen. Why, why is there evil in the world? How can we have faith in a God if he allows these things to happen? I, I don't know the best answer, but all I do know is that he knows and he has made plans. And that Isaiah 55 says, as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. I don't understand but I know that God has a plan. And so, verse 17, When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of, of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of people. But this, this is so important here. This is, we need to get this because this is, this is what makes, in my opinion, what Jesus says on the cross mean that much more for me. Because you, you kind of ask the question, okay, what's going on here? Why is it? Why did God decide to do this transaction this way? I mean, is, is it normal to, to cut up 
a cow, a goat, and, and basically what, what he did was he, he cut them in two pieces and made an aisle. And that was how he made the covenant. Now, I, I, it's hard to say what the, uh, the, the intention was here. It's hard to say you know, what, what the symbolism means, but, but looking at, at some of the, um, some of the extra-biblical uh, history uh, of that day, uh, we, we see that, that this transaction really wasn't that uncommon. It wasn't uncommon to seal a deal by cutting an animal in half, and, and the idea is that both parties would walk in between that animal, and what they were saying was, we commit to hold up our end of the bargain, or something bad is going to happen to us. And, I mean, uh, I did some, <clears throat> some research on uh, Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> but I cited the sources that it gave, though. So it's good, right? I can, I can use that. Um, <clears throat> I found a, an 8th century uh, B.C. treaty between, uh, I have no clue how to say these names, so I'm going to give it a shot, King uh, Asher Niari. <clears throat> we're going we're to call him Al. And uh, of Assyria, and Mata'ilu, who we're going to call Matt. <clears throat> and the treaty reads like this. The spring lamb has been brought from its fold, not for sacrifice, not for a banquet, not for a purchase. It has been brought to sanction the treaty between Al and Matt. If Matt sins against this treaty made under oath by the gods, <clears throat> then just as this spring lamb brought from its fold will not return to its fold, Matt together with his sons, daughters, officials, and the people of his land will not return to his country. This was serious. And not behold his country again. It goes on. This head, if you have a, nobody's about to eat after this, right? You're good? Okay. <clears throat> this head is not the head of a lamb. It is the head of Matt. It is the head of his sons, his officials, and the people of his land. If Matt sins against this treaty, so may just as the head of the spring lamb is torn off, the head of Matt be torn off. I'm not going to break that covenant. Uh, th there's another, another covenant. Uh, king Esarhaddon. We're going to call him uh, King Ed. Uh, th there was a treaty where uh, he was trying to secure the throne and and here's, here's some of the text of this treaty. And, and understanding the history, the context, helps us understand why God chose to, to move like he moved, why he chose to sign this covenant uh, or, or bind this covenant the way he did. Here's what, here's what this treaty says. And again, I'm sorry, if y'all if are about to eat, I apologize. Sorry, not sorry. <clears throat> Just as these yearlings and spring lambs, male and female, are cut open and their entrails are rolled around their feet, so may the entrails of your sons and daughters be rolled around your feet. Again, we see that the animal slaughter represented the curse for violating, for violating the covenant. Now, did I just share that with you just so I'd have something kind of cool and historic and disgusting to share? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I'm in student ministry. You have to shock them occasionally to keep their attention. But no, more importantly than that, to understand what's going on here. Notice, notice the thing that, one of the things that Scripture does not say here. It doesn't say that Abraham passed between the pieces of the animals. But we see a flame, 
and a cloud, smoke. We, we see that symbolism elsewhere in Scripture, don't we? God is the pillar of cloud by day. He's the fire by night. What passed through the animals was not Abraham. It was God. And so the contract that he was binding, if we are going to presuppose that this is what he had in mind, this contextually, it, it makes sense. But what he's saying here is, Abraham, I am taking on the curse of this covenant so that if you renege on this covenant or if I break this covenant, and we know God cannot break his own promises, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And so he is agreeing in, in putting Abraham to sleep so that Abraham can't pass through these animals. What he's agreeing to is to basically accept the curse that he knows full, full well that he's going to have to receive. Because he knows, if he knew that Abraham's descendants were going to be held in captivity, he knew that Abraham was going to sin. He knew that Isaac was going to sin. He knew that everybody until Jesus was going to sin. So what he was doing was saying, Abraham, I know you can't, you can't hold up your end of the bargain, but I am choosing to take on this curse so that one day I'm going to have to pay for your sins. I'm going to have to spill my blood whenever it's your blood that should be spilled. Because that's, that's what the covenant said. That's what it, what it means. What it means. If, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I be like these animals. And so, we fast forward to John, and we see a picture of Jesus spilling his blood, his body being torn, crown of thorns, nails through his hands. And that is where he made payment for this covenant that he made thousands of years ago. So you see, as you're reading the Old Testament, it's not there just for history. It's not there just so that you have weird names that you have to figure out how to, how to say. But it's there because Jesus is there every step of the way. These things are pointing to the cross. So for Abraham, for, for the covenant with Abraham, God was assuming the liability. And so ultimately this phrase has far-reaching implications. Because Scripture says that Jesus paid once for all. How often do we struggle with thinking that our identity is found in the sin that we struggle with? We carry such a burden. Now, I have, I have students that I don't see how they carry the burden that they're carrying because they're told by their loved ones that they don't matter. They're told by their friends that they don't matter. They feel because they're struggling with something that they don't matter. But how do you, how do you assess value? What is it that makes you valuable? How do, how do you determine how valuable a car is? Well, you, you set a price to it, and the price that you're willing to give, that's how valuable it is, right? So we are valuable enough that this plan that God put in motion, even before the Abrahamic covenant, when he said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and I shall bruise his heel. 
The plan of salvation, the cross, was always meant to happen because that's how valuable you are in God's sight. You are not the sin that you're struggling with. You are valuable. You are worth dying for. You are worth the creator of the world making a covenant that he knew the other party couldn't keep. So don't ever let anybody say that you are not valuable. So what is finished? My sin. Now, is it truly mortified? Is it truly killed? No, I'm not going to be perfect until I get to heaven. But in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. You'll have trouble. You're going to have a hard time. But be of good cheer. I've already overcome the world. It's finished. The victory, done. Your payment, done. Your value, done. I'm setting the, I'm setting the price. <clears throat> so as, as we get ready to, to worship, as the band comes, Jesus' comment, whenever he said, it is finished, made possible statements like Paul made, this beautiful profession <clears throat> of who he was and who God made him to be. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, I love this passage of Scripture. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus <clears throat> came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It doesn't stop there. But I received mercy for this reason. God was merciful to me. In his loving kindness, he extended grace to me. Daniel prays this beautiful prayer in in Daniel chapter 9. He says, Lord, it's, it's not because I offer supplications, not because of my own merit. But Father, it's because of your loving kindness. Because you love me, you listen to me. Paul says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him, have faith in him, have faith that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do in your life of chaos, in your life where nothing makes sense. God is still a God who's consistent. God is still a God who's faithful. And we might be an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And then he finishes the statement. And and reading this verse, I think about what this being that Paul is describing here was willing to do. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The king of ages was willing to take the curse of this covenant because he values our soul. He values us that much. Guys, as you continue this conversation, this thought of, of faith, who you're putting your faith in, that's, that's the God. That's the picture that God wants to, wants to show you. God received the most glory through his son in dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And he did that because he loves us. So guys, that's the good news. It's finished. We don't have to live in our sin. We don't have to live in our strife because God, through his son, made an end to it. It is finished. Father, 
I thank you that you love us. Father, I thank you that you know us. You know our story. You know every time we're going to fail you. You know every time we're going we're gonna to disappoint. Lord, I, I'm so thankful that, that Paul could say this truth in Romans chapter 3. Even whenever we're faithless, Lord, you are faithful. So, Lord, I thank you that that's the message of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, that that you are faithful to your promise, and your promise has always been to reconcile your beloved, your sons and daughters, to yourself. Father, it came with a price. I thank you that you were willing to pay that price. So, Father, we glorify you. We magnify you. We want to shout this message, this truth to everyone we see. They are valuable because the king of ages came and died and he rose again to pay our sin debt, Father. It is finished and we thank you for that. We pray these things in your name.